Well, welcome to the Black Madonna Speaks with me, your host, Stephanie Georgiev. Thank you so much for spending your valuable time with me. And before we get started, I want to give a special shout out to my wonderful Patreon supporters. Your multi-leveled support means the world to me, and this podcast would not be possible without you. Thanks also to all who subscribe, like, and share. And for those of you who do reach out to me, I really enjoy the individuals who follow The Black Madonna Speaks. You're all quite extraordinary human beings who make our current times interesting, creative, and help to contribute your gifts to us all. A brief announcement regarding the In Search of Sacred Origins, the Golden Heart of Africa trip with Sophia Services which is under the leadership of Sarnia Guiton. We're all set to begin the trip on the 12th of September, 2023, and that's only a few days away. For those of you who would like to receive the materials from all the talks I will be giving in South Africa, as well as the In Search of Sacred Origins trip, you can receive them for a one-time donation of $100 to my PayPal account, listed in the program notes. For those of you who cringe at the notion of PayPal, no worries. They take credit cards if you do not have an account. This offer will be available until September 15th, 2023, and you will receive the materials after they are presented during the tour. The day of this posting, September 6th, is just a few days before Merry Mass, the title of the Festival of the Birth of the Virgin Mary. This liturgical feast is currently celebrated on the 8th of September and has a very interesting history. Several episodes ago on The Black Madonna Speaks, we explored the whole history and spiritual evolution of the Assumption of Mary. What I hope to convey in that episode was how differently early Christians conceptualized the Christ impulse in general. As I said in that episode, we moderns have no idea about the consternation and focus of the debates that went on for centuries in terms of how to understand what happened in Palestine through the mystery of Golgotha. In one aspect, humanity actually did not have the capability to understand what had just happened. We had, through the deed of Golgotha, recently been given the ability to think independently and the mysteries of the cosmos were opened up to the general public. When before, such mysteries were revealed only to a select group of initiates who had been preparing for lengthy periods of time before the secrets of the universe were revealed. After the crucifixion, as we read in Matthew twenty-one fifty-one, when the veil was torn in two, This was the sign that humanity had complete access to divinity, and initiation was open to all. Since that time, the initiation has been life, and it is up to us as individuals to reach out to the spiritual world and use our own hearts, minds, and wills to learn from our respective ordeals. My interest is in early Christianity, and it may be an echo from some past life or something, but those early centuries for me are so fascinating because in many ways it was a free time 
before the institutionalization of belief and religious infrastructures were put in place. There was no concept of heresy. That was what they were arguing about for hundreds of years. In fact, it was just this sort of fascination with ancient Christianity and a longing for pure, untainted experience of spirit that inspired many to join various religious orders in the Middle Ages. It was the obvious contradiction between the spirit of Christianity and the great hypocrisy of all sorts of elements of culture, economy, and religious institutions that drove people to search for alternatives. Does that sound familiar? People during the Middle Ages were seeking a pure experience, the apostolic fervor, if you will, that got strangled along the way. Obviously, the miracle is that so much has survived and flourished in terms of the Christ impulse. And it certainly is a miracle and shows that spirit and the spiritual world is strong and has invested in humanity wisely to help carry out the evolution of the cosmos into a cosmos of love. It's freedom that challenges us, as well as obstacles, and humanity always does, even though we have what we could politely call rough patches in terms of our evolution, which are well documented, but we do evolve and often towards goodness. The challenge of those early centuries of Christianity was what we are still being challenged by to this day, trying to conceptualize the spiritual within the material. We keep trying to limit or define divinity within the material world, and it really is the apples and oranges scenario. This is very true when it comes to comprehending and conceptualizing the mother of Jesus, commonly known as the Virgin Mary. Various liturgical festivals surrounding Mary are, in my opinion, all about trying to make sense of the spiritual in a material way. One of my favorite ironic moments was in the 1990s when some British Anglican priest or bishop made a pronouncement that Jesus was not the product of a virgin birth. After the sermon, when this notion was prevented, I'm sure to a shocked uh, congregation, a bolt of lightning hit the church steeple, causing it to fall off and creating a gaping hole in the roof of the church. Personally, I found this quite amusing in general, and as usual, the press does not follow up on these stories, and I often wondered if the pastor recanted his sermon or what happened afterwards. Anyways, the dogmas, which are church pronouncements, surrounding Mary and the mother of Jesus are the direct result of trying to comprehend how a God came to earth, lived in a human body, allowed himself to be killed by mortals, and then rose from the dead. And a lot of these controversies and questions started with the theologian Nestorius, who lived from 346 to 451, AD, and he promoted specific doctrines in the fields of Christology and Mariology. 
and Nestorius's doctrine called Nestorianism emphasized the distinction between Christ's human and divine natures. So he said they were totally distinct. And he argued that Mary should be called Christokos, which means Christ-bearer, but not Theotokos or God-bearer. And I know this sounds really like, what's the difference? But this shows that Christ was separate from God. Okay, So that actually is a very big deal. Um, but the words and the, the notions to us modern people just don't always make a lot of sense. And with all things during those days, specific wording was quite the sticky wicket and brought him and his Nestorianism into conflict with other church leaders, most notably Kirill, Patriarch of Alexandria. And Nestorius himself had requested that the Holy Roman Emperor, which was pretty much in uh, Constantinople at that time, um, he uh, had the emperor convene the council and ho hoped that it would prove his orthodoxy. And this was the council at Ephesus. It was actually the third ecumenical council. And he hoped that this would prove his version of the nature of Christ Jesus. But the council, in fact, condemned his teachings as heresy and uh, proclaimed Mary as Theotokos and also um, made an agreement on the Nicene Creed. And this council met in June and July of 431 at the Church of Mary in Ephesus in what is now known as Anatolia, but is also in the modern state of Turkey. Now, when Mary was declared Theotokos, or God-bearer, in that fateful summer of 431 in Ephesus, then the issue of her conception was also up for debate. And this debate lasted quite a long time, to be honest, several centuries. They take a long time to make decisions at this time, at this time in human evolution. Now, very little is mentioned in the canonical gospels on Mary. The most that is mentioned about Mary is in Luke's gospel. In fact, the Quran, which is the holy scripture of Islam, has more information on Mary, the mother of Jesus, than the canonical gospels. Much of the folklore and theology that surrounds Mary does not come from the New Testament or the Apocrypha. There are several alternate gospels that are not haven't been voted into the, the group, that outline her parents as Joachim and Anna and their lives, her conception and her early years. I would recommend several books if you are interested in reading the source materials for such legends. They're often available in ebook form. That's honestly how I purchase most of them because they're always on sale. <laughs> 
And the e-book forms are usually uh, around a U.S. dollar. So keep checking. And um, you can also get them in paperback and hardback. It just depends on what you, what you prefer. One of the most descriptive scriptures is called the Infancy Gospel of James, which gives extensive stories about Mary as well as Jesus. And I also recommend the Infancy Gospels of Jesus, Apocryphal Tales from the Childhoods of Mary and Jesus, Annotated and Explained. That's the title. And it's by Stephen Davies. And there's a fascinating quote in the introduction that is really worth repeating. So I'm, I'm reading directly from the introduction. Quote, The infancy gospels are not, strictly speaking, only about the infancies of Mary and Jesus. Rather, these ancient narratives tell stories about the circumstances of their conceptions, their births, their infancies, and their childhoods. These stories are fictions, legends, and folk tales arising out of the imaginations of ordinary Christians for the second through the fifth centuries, unquote. I find this quote very profound because of the discourse of the theologians of this time is well documented. I mean, they have economical councils on these things and literally are either burning at the stake, imprisoning people who don't go along with the accepted dogmas. And in some cases, they dig up their corpses and put them on trial, condemn them, and then burn them. So it's, it's, they, they were very serious about these things. And uh, so they're very, you know, documented these arguments. And some of the arguments are not benevolent or moral. Now, during all the endless debates, conclaves, and ecumenical councils among what we would now call the religious elite, there were day-to-day people trying to make a living, as well as sense of their lives within the context of an emerging understanding of the Christ event. These stories found in the infancy gospel are, according to Davies, quote, they give great insight into ordinary Christian people's religious thoughts and imagination, unquote. And I would argue one of the reasons that Mary, the Virgin Mary, came into prominence in the early church was specifically because the average person simply couldn't relate to a lot of these very abstract notions, but they could relate to Mary. So I think it's very interesting. And I think, I think this is the reason why currently there's such a fascination with the Virgin Mary that basically goes across all sorts of of communities from, you know, neo-pagans to agnostics to disgruntled, you know, Christians uh, and to people who don't even necessarily believe in spirit. They just like this whole concept. And I think it's because Mary is very relatable. And I think that's what Davies 
is talking about here in terms of why these uh, infancy gospels and these religious women who had visions that were describing uh, the early years of Mary as well as Jesus. I think that's why they were so, so interesting now and, and widely uh, accepted. Now, another fascinating source of conception, birth, and early life of Mary's uh, comes from a 13th century bestseller by Jacobus de Voragni. And his book is called The Golden Legends, Readings on the Saints. And this is a really delightful book. And if you can afford it, I recommend getting it in hardback or paperback. It's sort of like having an encyclopedia on all of the saints with these ancient legends surrounding them. It's it's really interesting reading. Some of it is a little difficult because it reflects... Uh, the common notions of the day, particularly towards women and unfortunately towards Jews. So you need to understand these aren't all enlightened, uh, loving uh, scriptures or narratives. They do reflect the day. But if you want to get insights into ancient and early Christianity, uh, this is really, really good. And you can also get this in, as an ebook version for if you sometimes they have a lot of sales on ebooks and so you can get them really cheap. And another source of the legends surrounding the Virgin Mary is the life of Mary as seen by the mystics. And this is by Raphael Brown. Now, one of the ways in ancient times is up through medieval times is and how women would have agency and position it was by being holy women now there are quite a few women during this time who had mystical visions which enabled them to influence culture and society and this is also true for later centuries now brown's book explores the visions and revelations of saint elizabeth of shonau she lived between 1127 through 1164. St. Bridget of Sweden, who lived from 1303 to 1373. The Venerable Mother of Mary of Jesus of Agreda, and she lived between 1602 and 1665. And Sister Anne Catherine Emmerich who lived from 1774 to 1824. You can obtain detailed books of the visions of each of these women in various formats. But what I enjoy about Brown's book is that he focuses the extensive canons of all of these women to details regarding the life of Mary. So it's kind of you know, at the risk of sounding a little irreverent, the Reader's Digest version of all these visions. Because if you read these visions, um, you know, there's there's several volumes of them. And because they're medieval and and what we would call classical romantic times, they, the verbiage can get quite extensive. Whereas Brown's book kind of makes it a little more concise. 
Now, in all of the legends surrounding the Virgin Mary, the theme emerges that Joachim and Anna are the parents. Many interpretations convey that they may have been members of the mystical Jewish sect of the Essenes, and the couple are always presented as extremely devout Jews who were in despair over not having a child. Through various stories, and some say that Anna was visited by an angel, and others say Joachim was, in, in, depends on which legend you read, the couple is somehow informed that Anna will bear a child. And they, of course, are overjoyed, and their joy increases when Anna gives birth to a girl. Now, for the times, this is very unique in that boys were much prized over girls and because this was basically the way the family line would go on and also how, how you know, mothers would be taken care of if they became widows. So the fact that there's such an emphasis on the pure joy that this couple has um, is to me very unique and, and very sweet. And I find it very special. And Joachim and Anna, out of their joy and gratitude, they dedicate Mary to God. And they raise her for three years at home. And they ensure that she's protected. I mean, and there's, there's all sorts of lovely little stories where it's like, well, she's not allowed to walk. We're not going to let her touch the ground. And they feed her special food and, and they tell her to pray and all kinds of stuff. They're, they're very protective and, and they honor this child. And according to all of the legends, she was just the perfect little child. And um, upon her third birthday, she's presented to the temple and she impresses everyone there by her ability to climb the copious amounts of steps all on her own, especially if she's not touched the ground for three years. This obviously was very impressive. And after her presentation, you know, after she's dedicated, she's left in the care of the temple servants and legends say that she was actually fed by angels every day and that she prayed all the time. And when she wasn't praying, she was weaving. And specifically, she was weaving um, prayer shawls as well as the uh, curtain that separated the Holy of Holies to the rest of the temple. Now, the dogmas associated with Mary are her immaculate conception, which means she was conceived without aid of her parents having physical intercourse. The dogma of her presentation at the temple, which is she, where she's handed over and dedicated to service as a temple virgin. The other uh, dogma is her status as Theotokos, God-bearer, and then the dogma of her assumption into heaven. Now, these dogmas have deep relevance to Catholicism as well as Orthodox Christianity. Now, Protestant Christians do not have dogmas per se uh, regarding Mary. In fact, I don't know if Protestantism has any dogmas per se. I think a lot of it just is what you know, Bible is the 
literal word of God, because <clears throat> the Protestants don't really have a lot of sacraments and stuff like that. And um, Protestants basically referred to her at the birth of Jesus and the crucifixion, and she's also meant, uh, mentioned and, and honored uh, during Pentecost. But spell it for the for the Protestants. The iconography for the Immaculate Conception for Mary features Joachim and Anna embracing one another, and they're usually touching foreheads. And there are icons and paintings featuring the birth of Mary, which um, upon casual glance, if you didn't know what you were looking at, you were, would think it was the nativity of Jesus. Uh, but the main differences between the nativity of Jesus uh, and the nativity of Mary is that it's in a house with many people presence, present, the presence of a bath for the baby, and often Joachim is pictured with a medieval Jewish hat on his head. The scene is a bedroom or a house, so not a stable. There's not any animals present. And there's often a table set for a meal. And the iconography for the presentation at the temple always includes Mary walking up a large flight of stairs and both of her parents are there. And often there's little angels flying about and we often see angels also in the nativity picture. Now for me, all the dogmas, stories, gospels, and narratives surrounding Mary show the creativity, imagination, as well as the confusion surrounding the Christ event in those very pivotal first centuries of Christianity as a movement. And again, from my perspective, much of the folklore and dogmatic debates surrounding trying to comprehend these spiritual events within a materialistic context are what is going on. But that's, that's my opinion. And I'm looking at this with a modern brain. Now, are these legends of Mary true? I have no idea. Personally, I like them. <laughs> I like these darling stories surrounding Mary as a child and a young girl. And maybe the stories are true, as the consciousness and imagination of early Christians was more in tune with spiritual matters and collectively humanity has hardened uh, in the years since the Renaissance. So, you know, there was, a, there was a different consciousness in those early days of Christianity. So for me, the stories also reflect a deep hunger for the divine feminine, for the feminine mysteries, which I can say as a person raised in a Protestant environment was completely lacking. Now these images, festivals, and dogmas I feel are a pathway to wholeness as we need to balance the feminine with the masculine in order to be whole. As always, I leave it up to you, my listeners, to discern what is best for you regarding these legends surrounding Mary. I hope whatever your orientation or belief system is, that you can be inspired by the images and stories of the Nativity of Mary to balance the divine feminine within your souls. This is Stephanie Georgia saying thanks again to my Patreon supporters. For those of you who subscribe, like, and share this podcast, again, 
if you would like all the materials from the uh, my talks that I'm giving in, in South Africa and Namibia, there's a link in the program notes on how to do that. And may your days be ones of new birth, and I wish you warm, warm blessings on your journey.